This episode is sponsored once again by RCAT. Thanks, RCAT. It's spring, which means it's time for growth, renewal, and adjustment. But we're not just talking about your failed New Year's resolution. We're talking about building products. Manufacturers are removing, adjusting, and adding products on their catalogs to meet the standards of an evolving industry. That means your old CAD, BIM, and specifications might need updating. Luckily, RCAT works with manufacturers to get their newest information online so you know you are getting the latest and greatest from building product companies. Best of all, the data is free for you to browse and download. You don't have to even register, so check out rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. The next time you need the latest building product information. So, what do we talk about today? <laughs> We're talking about... Uh... 5D BIM. I want scratch and sniff BIM. Oi, oi, oi. All right. Let's do this. So we're going to continue to talk about the stuff we haven't talked about. I would like to get to the point where we're talking, and maybe we can merge the two things um, about tool making, because I feel like that's probably a good place to, to at least want to get to. I don't know if we need to get there today, but... <clears throat> Because a lot of the tools are so open that you can make your own tools in them, right? Like Grasshopper, like Dynamo, like that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, um, <clears throat> I'm only going to provide opinion because uh, I think know we could much about them. Well, I'm talk. You know, we talk about some of these other things like test fit or um, real time rendering, which, and I don't know, mm, Neil. Like, right. what at your firm are you guys using anything techie that you want to talk about? So, what do you? So are you creating drawings in your office, Neil? No, not anymore. So you don't I mean you don't I haven't draw, you don't because all my projects just are under construction. Uh but I mean right now, but that'll probably change this summer. And I will say this we do have unique challenges in how we use something like uh any BIM model tool, whether it's Revit or or any other uh application, is that um you know BIM in in and of itself is meant to model buildings. And so like a project you were just showing us, um, Cormac, perfect example. You have a building, you can model that building, you can do all this stuff. Um, Evan, same thing for you. You're doing a school. You, you, know, you do that school or whatever project it might be. Uh, for us, we're doing residential units where we may have a, you know, a four five, six story building that's, um, you know, three stories or four stories of wood over a podium type of thing, but it's got, you know, it has multiple units inside. So it's like we, we build the challenge we have is these units all repeat. So you model this unit and you've got to repeat it all around because I mean, it's like building a hotel, right? Is essentially what we're doing. Well, we did, we did an and, eight story student housing tower. That's Podium okay. with steel construction there on you top, go. and I mean, it's just like AutoCAD, oh, you can, wow. you can, uh, <laughs> you can do. It's they're all blocks, right? Like they're all Revit files, and you can right. swap them out. And yeah, I, I don't think you that do the same yeah, thing. Any you can do yeah. any building in Revit. It doesn't matter what size it is. Yeah, I mean, our, our no, largest no, one is it's, student it's not, housing. Yeah, and so we do tons the, of student housing. Yeah. 
the that's that's one one okay so i mean those are probably similar in that respect but uh um the the challenge we have is that the units don't always match up perfectly with the outside um in other words you can have windows changing stuff like that so yeah i don't know how you guys handle that but um you know that that's a bit of a challenge so i think the, one of the ways they've been doing it is they'll build the units without the exterior wall yeah. and then the exterior wall is In like a, different a separate yeah. model it's a yeah it's a separate file so that you can have the windows on the outside be in different locations. Otherwise, everything just repeats everywhere. Yeah. So um, um, you do that. You know, I, I'm just not sure how we're actually doing it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's honestly, it's all how you set up the everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, and, and it's a trial and error process, right? I mean, you can kind of conceptually try and figure out how to do it. And then you have to do it and then make some errors. Oh, that Jesus, that doesn't work. And then, you know, so it's a tough, it's a process every firm has to go through. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so. there was the comments on Entree Architect. Uh, they were talking about how they were frustrated with like the quality of the models and stuff that they were getting from people that they were, and they're just like, yeah, I just don't think Revit's, you know, good enough. And I mean, you could say Revit, you can install whatever word, you know, Vectorworks, yeah. Archicad, whatever. Program. And, you know, so that's always when I always pull out the the Troxel quote by garbage in, garbage out. The information that you get out of models, the the way that you assemble them and, and everything else is only as good as the information mm -hmm. that you put into it. And, you know, you got to like, I mean, that's why that's why I, I firmly believe in at least in the delivery process of things, the old way of thinking, the old way of billing where it's, you know, let's just say 25% SDs, 25% DDs, and then the 50% CDs, that model literally needs to flip to, you need to spend more time. It needs to be almost like 40, 40, and then 20, you know, because really the 20% is just documenting the stuff that you've developed, like really modeled out and then developed it all out. So I think design development should really be where the details and everything are are f flushed out and then really just spend a small portion of time developing details, developing the information, making sure that your information versus, you know, that you're showing on the documents corresponds with what you're showing in the specifications. But we really got to spend more time up front doing that because... You know, so for like you, you know, if you're making modules out of these things, if you spent more time actually assembling the, the model module and, you know, then I don't want to really call it plug and play, but if you do like a plug and play type, you know, method, then the modifications are going to be that much easier because you've got more detail, more information and and so if it swaps, if you like stretch a, a, a floor plan or you, you know, flop it around and stuff like that, it, it makes it a little bit, I'm just speaking from my own experience, it would make it a lot easier for you um, than having to kind of basically restart or like do this extensive modifications to it. You know, because you have your roots there, you have the, the seeds already there and then all you got to do is just kind of like do it is fit to certain 
fit to the site kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could go on and on. Honestly, seriously, I could go on and on because like we're talking about right now how I've got three different, yeah, three different steps of partition reordering um, that I have to document for just the, you know, the demolition process. Like I've got partitions to demo a certain area for a path. Then I've got to take those down and then I've got to put up dust collection or dust control partitions and then let them do their demolition work. And, and then like the finished product of the demolition takes all of the dust collection partitions down and then puts infection control partitions up now I've got to like document and show all of these and they're all phased out. And so I've got to, you know, create phases in my model to turn on and turn off the phases, you know, depending on the construction process, you know, the, the mm -hmm. construction sequence, make sure all of those things are documented and shown all that. Up. But that takes time. That takes a lot of effort up front that we always are trying to save to the end. And it just makes no sense. Right. So it goes back to the whole <laughs> Well, Evans, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, it just goes back to your, your, your lovely comment that I use more often than I can think of the garbage in garbage out. Yeah. You like to take shortcuts, right? Everybody wants yeah. to take shortcuts and shortcuts yeah. end up biting you in the ass in the end, because it, it's like we said, the last one, we put more into the models now than we ever did before. That's not going to change. I don't think. No, it's going to, it, it, if we, Go more. exactly. If we start to move further and further away from the 2d document or the 2d delivery and move more into the model-based delivery yep. process and model-based construction. It's going to be so much, so much bigger. People will scoff at like, ha, I've got a uh, 40 gig model. Like, really? That's it. You know, <laughs> you're going to have a 400 gig model. You're going to have a terabyte model soon, depending on the size of your project. Well, let's get going here. Let's do this. Aren't we already going? Are we? You tell me. <laughs> we could be. <laughs> what are we talking about? Stuff. New this? tech. How? Yep. New tech. This. All of this. I think this is still good. We can. Yeah. I, I so so one of the things that I think Neil that you know just to kind of throw fuel on the fire here is that most of the time, and it this is just what it sounds like to me is. The, the new the new technology that's out there is forcing a paradigm shift in the thinking and the approach, but mm -hmm. we bring so much baggage to the problem of how we've solved it in the past that we always try to apply that to the new way. So exactly. you, when you're talking about the way that the way you used to do it, here's how we used to do it. And so you're still totally yeah. thinking like that and you're trying to apply that to a new way of doing it that, that, is not designed to do it that way. It's do it's designed to do it a completely different way, which if you, if you can remove yourself and plug yourself into the new way of doing things, you will see the benefit, but it takes time to get to the benefit, <laughs> which I think is what Cormac is talking about, right? Because yeah. it's like yeah. you, you spend more time up front so that you can get the value later. Whereas if you, if we're always looking for, you know, trying to apply the way that we did do it or, trying to find some shortcuts, then it actually just, the problems snowball down the road and it gets way harder to do what you want to do. And so I, I see like new software trying to 
make an inroad into the way that you know our process that we already have and and I think a lot of times we're just getting in our own way because it's like well here this thing can't it, they always promise it can be faster it can be cheaper it can be easier it can be this or it could be that but then it ends up not being like that and we just feel like we're getting burned because we're trying to apply the way we've always done it to this new tool and a lot of times I think the the innovation is happening because there's a, a completely new approach and we're not even willing to think about it that way and generalizing right like the we um because the innovation is happening because they've removed themselves from the old process applied a completely new process but they haven't educated us very well on how to make that leap either mentally or physically or whatever so man we're 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 still like three steps behind and trying to figure out you know like it's you guys are doing 3d drafting it's what it sounds like and and so when you're actually talking about cabinets and smart objects and being able to schedule them so you can reduce the amount of work that you have to do in the future does take a completely new way of thinking and man that is hard to do in a firm that's been around for a long time yeah i mean because there's i think a lot of that kind of hesitation in changing the 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 dynamic of how we you know go about doing all of this is almost purely wrapped around the way we bill yeah because totally you know we we bill a certain way <laughs> and that's the way we need to produce right but the way we produce now is completely different because we are spending so much time up front they're like why is it taking so long for you know design development it's like well you're really looking for me to let's take my built my current project for instance i've got a bunch of context that I need to spend a lot of time having all of that context modeled, having all of that context surveyed, getting point clouds. And then once I get the point cloud, I actually have to do something with that point cloud by creating all of the ex the existing conditions based off of those surveys that I had and making sure that they're right and not, not just right enough, but right so that the information that I'm actually able to build off of when I'm building my portion of the, of the site is actually correct instead of just, eh, it's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so you're saying there's, there's like, and this doesn't go for every firm, but larger firms, you're, you have an accounting department or a, a billing department and, you know, business services is over there pushing for, again, the way we've always done it. Here's here's the contracts we've always used. There's an efficiency right. in that. And then you also yeah. have it, I don't know about you guys, but for us, most of the time the contract's driven by the client anyway. It's not mm -hmm. our contract, it's their contract. Right. And exactly. they don't do what we do. And we're not the connection to our firm is business services. Or maybe it's even a PIC, right? But but they're also the ones who don't do the work. So they don't understand right. necessarily unless they're really hands-on and involved with the day-to-day -day operations of, of how you're going to tackle the problem to be able to inform the client and the contract early on before the project starts of how you're going to tackle the problem because we don't even understand the problem yet, right? So, man, talk about catch-22s and chicken and egg and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're really talking about attacking a problem at so many levels with so many different people involved and nobody is 
is communicating at the level at which they kind of need to. Like I, you almost want to take business services and the accountants and the contract writers from the client side and the internal side and have them sit with a project team to actually understand how you're doing it today, which doesn't guarantee how you're going to do it on the next project, right? It's so complicated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you do that? Could you, could, could you co, could, could you put them sitting side by side and, and actually get any osmosis to happen between, are, are they just so wrapped up in their own world? Is everybody so wrapped up in their own world that that, that, that I, will never happen? I, I would, I would venture to guess that, right now everybody's so wrapped up in their own world of like you know we've i've got to keep building i've got to keep the the billing and accounting process going and then they, on the client side you know they've got it's not just dedicated to like your your one single project they've got other things that yeah. are going on right and especially like institutional you know the, the last thing that they really care about or think about is the the contract that you know we have between us to a point obviously, but, you know, and then there's just all the different layers. You're right. That just don't seem to understand from the trench aspect, what goes into the creation of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I start thinking about how quickly people are expecting just to kind of keep going with just the software side of things. I mean, you know, how quickly people start to think of, I, I need a photorealistic rendering, um, pulled together. And, you know, they say, can you pull together some photorealistic renderings? And they think about it, you know, <laughs> exactly. It's just like, can you, you know, throw this, this stuff together? And it's like, it's not, I mean, you're, you're only going to get, I mean, sure you can, you know, there's, there's plenty of like plugins for our, our BIM softwares out there that can, you know, help, you know, start to crank out photorealistic renderings of things but they're only going to be as good as the information that you've put in. Yeah. Well, and I think as architects, we're pretty comfortable making something look like you, th you oh, yeah. it's going to yeah. look like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like the real yes. thing, even if it's not like we're, we're okay with that. Right. Like we, a lot, especially when it comes to renderings, you, you just model the stuff you see. You don't have well, to model it all, but man, like when it comes later on down the road and they're like, well, you showed us this before and, and that, now that's not it anymore. There it's like, go. well, we only knew so what will, we knew, right? <laughs> I will, I will most certainly say in my old age, um, where I have become crotchety in promising things that I can't deliver. Mm -hmm. So we were showing an existing elevator lobby in, you know, some really nice finishes and things like that. Some, some renovations to the, to this larger kind of like anti-lobby and then, you know, elevator lobby, you know, type stuff. And, and it's a really... It looked great. We were happy about the design, except for one thing. They were showing, I believe it was a 11-foot ceiling. I'm going to just guess about an 11-foot ceiling. Well, I'm, I'm looking at them like, how can this be? How are, how are we showing an 11-foot ceiling? And they're like, oh, you know, we'll just, you know, um, try to reroute, you know, some existing duct work and we'll pull it up. I'm like, okay, let's, let's stop for a second. Like, let's start thinking about this. This is an existing structure. The existing, the existing floor to floor height is 12 foot eight. This is a six inch concrete slab with concrete encased steel beams and columns. 
just that alone is going to be sitting down past our 11 foot ceilings, let alone, you know, any kind of the, you know, this one kid, you know, he, he tries and he's, he does a fantastic job, but you know, his, his education right now is it's slowly getting to the part where, you know, you're, you start to click the, the design and, and existing conditions together. Cause you know, you in school, we don't live with constraints. And so he cut a section and there were literally was two inches between the bottom of the structure and the bottom finish face of the acoustical ceiling that they were showing. <laughs> Well, like, that stuff's only you, half inch thick. So and then he goes, he's like, he's like, he's like, see, it works. Like, <laughs> start scratching my head. Like, how do I, yeah. How do I explain to you how that not, that doesn't work without just like absolutely losing it. And then Here we just, all we the walked, ways it does not work. We walked through, we started talking about things and he's like, well, well, how much does it realistically need? Like realistically in this kind of a volume, I mean, you know, let's start like backing it up. It's like you had six inches for your plane of your, you know, ceiling and your, your lights. And then above that, you know, you've got, you know, um, uh, your fire protection, you've got this, and then, you know, you've got your, um, mechanical system, you got cable trays, you've got all of these other things and I start like listing all of the different things. He's like, so two inches isn't going to work. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> no, no, it isn't. Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. So, you know, it's just like, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, when people, and where, where all of that was going is when we promise them or we show them these beautiful, like shiny images of, you know, this 11 foot ceiling and this thing's like, oh, that's going to be so great. It, it just feels more open. Mm. No, it really doesn't because it can't. Yeah. And then you just, you know, it's like, so. But you showed I've us. Gotten, yeah, exactly. It's just, can't you make it work? Yeah, it's hard. Well, you know, I, I could take this column and this column out. And then the 15 stories above will now be part of your first floor <laughs> and we can figure we can make it whatever we want. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just, um, I, I've, where I was going with this, just, I, I need to have more in, in, as part of my, you know, evolve, ever evolving, um, new position in the profession. It's getting people to understand the design decisions, especially in renovations, because I've been spending a lot of time in the past you know decade or so dealing with renovations, especially in renovations, the a clear understanding of your existing conditions and a clear understanding of your design intent have to mesh up. They have to be um, talking to each other. And the the designer needs to understand those existing conditions because. If we're promising something and the client attaches to those things and they say, this is what I want and you can't deliver it, we all look like idiots. We all look like assholes. And, and I, and so, and well, so that's where the whole project premise is based on people knowing that information or, or right. coming from the client side, like they've lived there for how many years already. So they, exactly. they have a pretty good understanding. So you do too, right? Yeah. I mean, there's just, it, there's, and these are just kind of the the real human things that happen on every project right and so it's like well how fast can you guys get up to speed on this project how fast can you understand the problem so really i mean going into a more software approach to that you know um one of the things that you can do to really understand the existing conditions is you know point cloud surveys of 
the existing conditions and, and being able to do basically map out where everything is, where all of the piping is, where all of, um, you know, the above ceiling, uh, stuff is where, you know, devices on the walls are, you know, where everything is that if say, you know, and, and I'm speaking from, you know, a renovation aspect of it, because right at this present time, I'm totally living in a renovation pro project, but I see technology being able to help me out even far more than like, say, uh, I mean, we talked about it in, in previous shows in the past of the, you know, the one elementary school that I did in um, historic Annapolis, Maryland, where, you know, there's two, two historic buildings, but we didn't have any existing conditions. So the entire building was um, put together based off of field measurements, photographs, and um, one boundary survey. <laughs> it is the old way. <laughs> the very old way. And, and I think about how much easier it would have, I would have been able to facilitate that project if in, you know, we weren't quite there yet with, with point cloud, but I mean, we are now, but, and I think about how much easier, cause I had like a four inch bust between, um, where the end of my new building and the start of, uh, the existing oh, wow. building, Close enough. um, Four, four inches is huge. <laughs> um, and they just say, well, that's, that's your expansion joint. And you're like, oh, ah, shit. Wow. So, um, but yeah, I, I know what, you, what you're saying, but I mean, there's, there's caveats that come along with that, right? There's, Oh, t totally. I mean, you, you're not going to spend as much time. I think, I think a lot of times we don't even take the time part into consideration when it comes to these, these new things, um, where it's like, well, yeah. well, paint me two pictures and it, show me show me the the one where it's the way we've always done it and then show me the one where it's the new way and then show me the one where it's the new way once we know what we're doing right those are those are three right. completely right. different pictures because if you're talking about field verification you know on site as building that measurements like you're talking about you're talking about multiple people multiple days multiple times because they missed stuff and they didn't Mul yeah multiple return trips right and and so now you got to take travel time into consideration and availability and um and then there's like the whole site logistics side of it when it's a a school when can this happen and who can mm -hmm. be there and who can't be there and um is do they have to open it up after hours do they got to pay somebody to do that are there unions involved like man talk about you know when you're working with a a large client like LAUSD or somebody that where, where all that comes into play, it gets really difficult. But even at the simpler level, you know, you're, you're still talking about sending at least one person out probably, you know, three or four times to catch all the stuff they didn't catch and the re-photograph and versus a point cloud where it's like, well, you can send a team of two people out and it's going to, it's going to take time to do all this scanning, but you're yeah. never going to have to go back. Like, let's just say, ideally you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to go back. And, and then the next time you do it, you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to do it even faster, right? Because there is an efficiency to that. I don't, I don't know that there's too much efficiency to be gained if you send somebody back to do hand measurements, but you, you know that there's busts in the measurement. Whereas like a point mm -hmm. cloud scan, mm -hmm. you, you get within a millimeter period right. every single you time, just... depending on the, the technology you're using. But the other caveat is technology that you need to actually handle the data Right. Right. Which is huge. Right. You're talking about eight gigabytes of of scan data that you then have to be able to throw into your link into your Revit model or decimate it down mm -hmm. to where you can actually use it and draw on top of it to build the BIM model 
you know, because you're not, you can't, the point cloud doesn't build a BIM model for you. You got to, you got to do it. Somebody's got to do yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm totally waiting for that next iteration of well, cloud, it exists, uh, it exists, but but they went proprietary with it. They, they it used to be a thing you could just download and and use, but now uh, they kind of locked it back up. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, because they, you know, it's a, it is an advantage to the companies that have spent the R and D money to create that mm-hmm. software to do that to be the ones who who can do it. Uh, without having to do it by hand, so so right. there's there's an investment in, in technology to handle the amount of data, and then there's just the the learning curve that comes with it. Obviously, there's always going to be a learning curve, um, but it is way more accurate. Like you said, you're not going to be four inches off in the end. Um, you're, <laughs> if you're actually laser scanning, you're not going to be off at all, and you right. can see exactly how thick every single wall is. Um, and if you scan up in the ceilings, you will see where the piping is. And if you don't, you won't, right? So, um, but the cool thing about point cloud scanning too is, or just let's just call it reality capture, is that they're also taking photographs at the same time, 360 photographs at every location that they do a scan from. So in one window, you can have the the photographic information, which is full color. You can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can see all the stuff that was captured in the point cloud, but then you also have the 3d data from that thing. So when you're, whenever you're doing an addition or a modernization or whatever, I mean, it's, it's an amazing tool to have access to nowadays. And like you said, back on your Annapolis project, you didn't have, that wasn't even a thing, but now it is. And and how many years has that been? Um, less than 10. Yeah. Less than 10. I mean, that's, that's crazy talk, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, now that you just explained um, some of the other op- other things that Point Cloud is doing, I'm apparently not using it to my full extent, mm. which would be great to be able to do that because um, we just had a meeting um, just a couple of days ago where we were talking about you know some certain certain conditions above some elevators and. Um, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, we could just uh, get rid of the equipment up here and, and do that and, and come to find out that it's inspection equipment for the actual elevators. So you can't get rid of it. But the then in turn, the you know, we're talking to the client about it and they're like, I didn't even know that existed. And so like even point cloud, because, you know, we're doing a pretty intensive um, survey uh, is letting you know, almost everybody know the, ex- you know, everything that's going on in their building. And if you're willing to scan all that stuff. So, you know, if, if you're, you're going to pop ceiling tiles and like, there's a bunch of crap up there. And guess what? If you're scanning steel beams, you don't get to see what's behind the steel beam unless you go scan over there. Right. So. Right. Right. You literally got to move around. You have to like, go get, be able to have access to everything and you can't have anything moving <clears throat> ever. Right. Right. So right. if you're at a school, get, you're scanning at night and on the weekends when there's no one there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, now this one was, you know, in this particular case, it was pretty important for us to scan a lot of these existing conditions because of the fact that it is a an operating hospital, you know, it's it's an in-use hospital, an in-use research facility. You know, you have tons, there's, there's just so many different um, parts and pieces to this project that still need to maintain you know, operation during the construction process. And so you need to literally know every little detail mm-hmm. just in case you 
so you can't leave anything to chance. You can't say, oh, I didn't know that information because I didn't know that that, you know, underpinning at this particular location was there. You know, so like with all of the different data, all of the different like as-built drawings that we have for it with the point cloud, with site verification and photog you know, and photographs that we do and, you know, popping our head above the ceilings, you know, which you can't do without a above ceiling permit, yeah. <laughs> which I just found out about. Well, you're not going to see uh, what's underground either, right? So ex exactly, you're just not. And you hope. Although it's what's interesting is the they were they're demoing a building out of the way that will eventually be part of our project. And you know, this building had been there since 1905, and now they're you know demoing the building, and there was apparently a building that was there prior to the 1905 building that they, what did they do? They left the foundations in place Wow! and built over the top of it. Shortcut. So not only do we deal it, yeah, not only dealing are we with, dealing with the old building, -year -old we're shortcuts. dealing with the older, older building. <laughs> wow. Ouch. Yeah. Which, you know, those are always fun surprises. I mean, yeah, those are really fun surprises. Yeah, man. I, I say that facetiously. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> fun in, in their, your air quotes mm -hmm. well so visualization is huge right we're talking that's what we're talking about with this point cloud stuff you're, you're talking about the ability right. to basically have existing with new right on top of each other um one of the other cool uses of reality capture is during construction where you could go through and scan a building while it's going up at some phase and make that data available to the client afterward so that they can see what's in the walls, right? Facilities management w loves that kind of thing. But again, they kind of have to have the technology in place to be able to utilize it too. So um, that's a fantastic well, use though, right? Like you could just do that with photography too. You could go in there with right. an Insta360 or a, a Theta, you know, a 360 capturing camera and just walk through um, and put together, you know, kind of a, a floor plan based um walkthrough of of 360 panoramas and and they can actually see in the walls you know before the jip goes up or whatever and and see where the hot lines are and the cold lines are and the you know whatever they're looking for depending right, on the right, right. type of building and then just make that available to them it doesn't have to be 3d data it can be 2d but it can be photographic and that can still be super useful you know i actually did that a couple times which now that i now that you say that, I don't think that I've really turned over those photographs. Well, a lot but, of times um, you'll see, you'll do photographs, but you don't know like the they just it's so foreign of a of an environment, the construction well, environment. I, so it's no, like, I, I did like which direction well, were you looking in? Yeah, I did three sixty stuff, but I mean, you know, never really like pin it back to a floor plan to mm -hmm. kind of help you know navigate some of those things. They were just they were more like ooh i've got a 360 uh you know capture on my phone and let me try it out and see how you know interesting it is and then go back and then show people in the office just like check out what's going on in the project yeah so if you um, if you like rico has what's called the theta camera and then there's the insta 360 which seems to be kind of the the rage right now uh because it captures a whole 360 degree environment in one picture <laughs> and then the software it basically gets rid of the selfie stick, which is cool because, you know, you could stick this thing up in a ceiling because, and you don't have, even have to have a ladder to do it. You can, hmm. 
you can it it comes on like a three foot pole or whatever, and uh, you can navigate through a three hundred sixty degree environment very easily. Uh, Interesting. In, like and, and so it's fast. I mean, that's really the key is that it's fast, fast, fast. You're just going through taking regular pictures. It, they also shoot video, which is awesome. Um, and obviously that video looks really distorted. But when they, it stitches it together, I mean, it does all this on device, you get to pick where you want to look. As so, so if you're walking down a hallway with this thing recording video and then you're playing it back later, you can walk down the hallway and see what the person who recorded it saw, or you can just change the direction and look around as if you're in a, a moving 360-degree spherical panorama, which is a lot of data. I mean, that's a lot of useful yeah. data. Oh, absolutely. If you marry up like the 360 photos with a service like roundme.com, you can actually upload a floor plan and place the nodes on there and then hand mm. that over to a client and say, Take a tour of your building, right? Uh, it's it's all super easy to use. So um, things like that, I think, are, are fantastic uses of new technology, on, especially for us on the visualization side of the projects that we're doing. And by us, I mean right. architects, right? Like mm -hmm. um, roundme.com is a, is a website that peop, you know, a lot of photographers use to show off their 360 panoramas that they can create tours of buildings. Mm -hmm. um, but for architects... Like you show off your project before it's done, right? I mean, it, and it's a really easy to use interface. Um, people really like it, so it's pretty cool. I mean, you you have to pay. Like they have a free Whoa. tier, but then if you do a paid tier, you can actually upload a floor plan and link the nodes together, so so people can see where they are in the building and start to get an idea of you know their surroundings a little bit better than you know have some more context than just standalone three sixty panos. Oh my lord. Um, okay, so I'm I'm looking at these. Uh, I of course went and clicked on it, and I'm looking at you know just some of the tutorials, and you know they've got some exterior shots of uh, you know the the night sky mm -hmm. um, in with both a, a time lapse and then 3D, and it's just got this absolutely amazing. It's it's almost looks like a meteor shower of of stars. Right. God, it's so incredible yeah i mean it really takes takes this stuff to the right. next level it's really that's cool. a link we need to def most certainly include in the show notes because this is uh just gorgeous yeah and so think about it from your project perspective right and what what oh, can yeah. you do you, what can you show people i mean the cool thing with with panorama rendering like this too is that you don't have to be constrained to where a normal person can stand right you could put a camera anywhere in 3d space mm -hmm. and render a, a 360 spherical panorama with any piece of software that, you know, they all do it now, um, Enscape or Lumion or it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and you load that into here and, and you're standing, you know, 30 foot up on a facade of a building looking around at it because it's more information. You know, think about it from an information gathering point of view rather than a human perspective point of view or a tour point of view. Um, it can be really useful in a lot of different ways. Like imagine yourself as a drone flying around the building, right? That, that could be useful for somebody to understand what you're trying to communicate with them. Well, speaking of drones, uh, you know, as part of just the surveying and, and stuff like that, I mean, you know, we are imploring, employing, um, drones, uh, 
to basically fly around and do like exterior assessments of the building, Mm -hmm. you know, so we can find out where, you know, if if it's 15 stories up and we can't really get to it, you know, from anything. And even with like me swapping out lenses and getting a, a zoom lens on my camera, sometimes I just don't, I can't quite get to certain vantage points to really kind of see and understand whether or not like existing conditions are in good shape or bad shape or, or things like that. And, you know, to be able to document stuff like that real time with, you know, photos and videos is just, it, it's becoming such, I mean, the, the information that we're able to gather on existing conditions now is just unreal and amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like you can go out with a drone and just by capturing photos, you can build a model from that. So you can stitch all that together use the technical term is photogrammetry. So you can Mm -hmm. basically stitch together um, images that are taken from different points of view to derive 3d data out of that. And, and, and it's not like Nat's ass accurate, but it's within an inch or two. But it's also helpful. Oh, it's super helpful. Right. Because yeah, it's like, well, how helpful is Google earth to you? Right. Google earth. I mean, so (laughs) a perfect example is, you know, we, I, I go to Google Earth um, during the middle of a meeting and we're talking about taking out um, some existing window units on a mid-rise tower, you know, because we're building our building right up against it and we've got to take, you know, a bunch of these things, you know, a bunch of existing, um, you know, HVAC systems out and they're just like, well, I don't know if it's really there. So you pull it up and you're just like, yeah, it's it's right here. Oh, that's what you're talking about. Okay, great. Yep. Pictures. Or, you know, and you, you know, especially if you're in an area where they've done, you know, like the 3D modeling of it, or, you know, you can switch to a 3D mode in, you know, Google Maps or, or on Google Earth, and you're able to see and twist around like a building. Cause, so like mine, you can, you can 360 pano this thing, you can, you know, zoom in pretty close to, to seeing all of the existing conditions, as long as they're up to date in, you know, you're able to like fully capture what's going on and have the conversations with them because the most important thing that comes out of tools like these are the conversations about, you know, whether or not something, you know, we, we didn't have certain things in the scope because nobody realized that they were there. And, and so the client's like, Oh yeah, yeah, we, we definitely want to get rid of that. You know, so let's, you know, let's, let's modify the scope so that we can include that. Okay. Yeah. So those have, all of those conversations that, you know, cause it's just like in the old days, <laughs> we'll go back to the, in my time, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you basically used to say, you know, okay, so think about that room, you know, picture this room and, and, you know, if you think, you know, on this North wall, you have this and on this, but you're, you're asking them to think about something. And instead with point clouds, with, you know, the, the, what was it? What is the official term? the reality capture mm-hmm. or, or, yep. Um, so, I mean, and, and with drones and with the 360 and all of this other stuff, you don't have to ask them to picture. You literally can show them. This is what I mean. That electrical panel right there, we got to do something with it because it's going to be, once we remove the rest of this room, it will now be on the exterior, but it's feeding an existing space 
So we got to think about that, but that was not part of the scope. So we've got to now add that to the scope of things. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, 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 we got to do that. Not speaking from experience, but no, of course speaking not. from experience. I think one of the most interesting things about drones, too, is that they can actually capture data beyond just what something looks like. So through the use of like infrared and um, I don't, whatever, they, I don't want to get too technical on it, but you can actually study an area for its hydrology, for, you know, how much moisture content there is in the plant life, like mm-hmm. what types of plants there are based on the coloration of them. And, and so there's, it's really, you were talking about the amount of data that can be captured. It, it goes beyond the image when it comes to this stuff. So if you've got a large site, you know, you've got a lot of acreage that you need to cover. Maybe you need to do a study of, of what's on, what exists on that site. What, what is the ecosystem that we're going to be disturbing potentially? Right. Uh, you can actually yeah. do a lot of that from the air and very quickly have a, a much better understanding of what you're dealing with. I think that that's, that's pretty amazing stuff. Or you could even, you know, you can build, you can get enough 3d geometry data out of it so that you can overlay your building into that and have it, Kind of match up, have it marry together and and match up the perspective so that you could see what the development is going to look like on the site in a very accurate way um, w- very early on because you you can derive all that 3 d data from it so there's there's a lot of neat development going on in that space for sure and I mean there's there's really cool software that lets you control the the, the flight patterning and um, what's the best time of day to do it? And and we can fly the same pattern over and over and over again. We can create a time lapse of you know during construction based on that. I mean, there's a lot of neat things you can do to tell a story even after the fact with with that kind of thing. Or you know, OSHA for instance is even using it to using drones to make sure that construction safety is happening properly. Right. So um, using like machine learning to analyze the video and see that the guardrails are up there on that, on that top floor on the roof, um, making sure that people are wearing safety vests, making sure that people are wearing hard hats. And it's interesting, right? Like this whole, yeah. <laughs> what, what other types of data are coming out of this kind of stuff it, beyond just, you know, let's just get up there and shoot a video. I mean, it's way, way past that. How do we make money at this? What? Well, with all this, this stuff and data. It adds a lot more value. At right? the end. It adds a lot more value. And I think that's where firms like, like you know, I had this guy come into my, my class when I was teaching it who is a, a civil engineer. And he would come in and talk about how they were early on to realize that they could offer this as a service. Um, and and so they that they invested in getting their pilot's license for the drones. And they invested in the software because it's not cheap. And... The early adopters get to steer the direction of the software development because they're working hand in hand with them and getting what they need out of it. So now they're offering visualization services for developer for developers, and they're they're offering these things. You know, when you're going for your um, entitlements and you're trying to get the sign off from the city to even, to do this development. And you can show them from the air what the thing, what this thing's going to look like in a very accurate way. And you could show the phasing of the building over time um, to show the impacts of how it's going to, what's going to happen to to the neighbors and how are their views going to be impacted. And like, you can do all that and offer that as a service and be a value added mm-hmm. partner during this process. So I think I, 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 
I like where you're going with that because I think that is a, a question you have to ask um, because at some point, like right now, when people ask for renderings um, every week, <laughs> right? When a client <laughs> asks for, for updated every renderings, um, that used to be an ad service and maybe, and now it isn't, uh, you know, but, and so, so I think part of it is being an early enough adopter to where it can be an ad service and then using that money to invest in that technology. Um, but at some point, I think a lot of these, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which side of the table you're on, they end up becoming part of the, the way we do business and they aren't necessarily right. an right. ad service. But man, if you're, if you're not doing internal R&D and trying to figure out how to do that stuff and how to capture it. And then later on when the client just expects it and then you're like, well, how are we going to pay for this? And they're like, well, the other architects we work with don't charge us for this because because they already know how to do it. And it's not a big deal and it's easy for them because they invested it early on to do that kind of thing. I think that is kind of a struggle that we ha we're all dealing with on some level. And I would even venture to say that I would guess that they are actually charging for it, but they're charging for it in a way where they already know what, you know, they've, they've done it enough where they've lost money enough um, early on that, you know, now it's just part of their, you know, delivery services and they may not like itemize it out, you know, they may, or they may, you know, it's just say, you know, pre-visualization, um, and stuff like that and just kind of roll it into like say the you know conceptual design phase or the schematic design phase to be able to you know include all of that stuff in there so back to your point neil i mean you know early on as you know we give away a lot of our services give away a lot of our services but um you're you're absolutely on point with thinking how do we make money off of this stuff and so when you start to see when we're able to sell that value to our clients then you know and make them understand that all you know we couldn't have been able to deliver the project i mean we could have probably been able to de deliver the project but maybe not at the highest level that they were expect that that we could achieve with know this data collection or you know drone you know photography or or whatever else you know now they're starting to see that so now we're able to start like actually billing that in and putting that as part of the process so you know we factor in that as the delivery method and we you know make money off of it finally and at some point you don't anymore it's be but but like i guess my point is it, Let's just say, you know, the project demands computational design to do something, whether it's right. whether it's in the programming phase or in the actual facade design or whatever it is. I mean, how do you charge for computational design? But I you mean, don't. you know, if, like you don't or <laughs> it's part you, of how you, you don't. It's part of how you get how you solve the problem. It's a tool you have in the tool bag. And I guess my, my point is, if yeah. you've never done computational design, man, you're you're kind of screwed you're going to be doing it by hand and it's going to take you a lot longer. Mm, yes. And so again, if you, if you're kind of just always sitting back and taking the, like if the client's not going to pay for this, we're not going to do it attitude, which I totally get like that is a val a valid way to do it for sure. Um, but if you're not pushing yourself to progress and, and do this kind of stuff one day, you are still not going to be doing that stuff. And then what? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then you're going to be competing against people who are doing that. And, and it's just part of their service. A, exactly. And yeah. are delivering a much, much better product and you're going to get beat out by them and you're just not going to be, um, <laughs> you won't be their client or their, uh, their architect. The other guy will. Neil, have you guys... So, Evan, what sort of tools are you using to do computational design? What's involved in that? First, for our listeners, just explain a little bit about what computational design is. Well, computational design, or, or let's just call it computation, is is any time that you basically have a set of constraints that you can test against in, by building the software to do what you want it to do. So we all know that that the, the software that we use doesn't do everything we want all the time, right? But I think what's kind of the most exciting thing about this, the main software platforms out there for BIM and for design, they have open APIs, which allow you to go in and make it do what you need it to do. So while they might not deliver every bespoke tool for every possible type of architecture firm out there, they do have give you the ability to create your own tools within it. And I think this is just kind of one of the meta topics that I wanted to talk about was just tool making. <clears throat> because because not everything exists, right? So when you're talking about computational design or design computation in uh, just like generically, you're talking about any time that you're going to be using data or a set of rules or a set of constraints to inform the design of whatever the thing is. So it could be the layout of a facade. It could be the the layout of a bathroom. It could, it, it really like, there's no way to really nail it down to a particular approach or outcome. You, it really is like you can use it for anything. Um, and I think a lot of people think about when they hear that, they think, what, what do you, well, what do you guys think? I guess that'd be a good question. When you hear the words computational design, what kind of architecture or, or what do you think of? For me, I, I always, I think of it as, um, you know, data and information design or driven design. I mean, you're, you're any using... particular style of architecture come to mind when, I, when people talk about computational design. Modern. I think a lot of people think like Zaha, right? I was, I was going to say more Swoopy. like of, you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm using the term parametric, right? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. just more like, you know, just, yeah, more, you know, Frank, you know, Frank Gehry, Zaha, you know, uh, these more like fluid and, and swoopy shapes or, you know, the, the, the shapes that you otherwise wouldn't be able to create if it wasn't for, um, you know, the, so, computational design. Yeah, so and I I think I think where it really starts to make sense is is that you could use any tools to make those shapes. Like you could make those shapes in SketchUp. You could hand draw those shapes. You could draw them in AutoCAD. It doesn't matter, right? But what computational design actually allows you to do is is you said the word they're parametric and because there are parameters when you're talking about parametric design or design computation, um mm -hmm. you're you're putting in inputs that are driving the shapes. And so while computational design is just not about form making, um, I think what it, one thing that it does do really well is it makes weird shapes fabricatable. And so that's the key change in the sentence. It's like a lot of people think it makes weird shapes. 
Actually, so it makes saying... weird shapes fabricatable because those wouldn't be real buildings if you couldn't kind of distill them back down into their most basic elements and make something real out of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what you're saying is, is it makes weird possible. So I'm a computational human. <laughs> yes, Terminator. <laughs> to, to distill it down to so understandable. I mean, no, that, and actually, that's just one it, aspect. It totally, it totally makes sense. And 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 yeah, I mean, because you, you think about it, you just like you look at these and you're like, how the hell are you able to do that? I mean, you know, if you were uh, an automotive designer and you know you looked at some of these you know old swoopy shapes and things like that of the way things you know were and and I, I speak from a little bit of experience my wife's grandfather uh, ran the model shop at ford and you know created a lot of the iconic cars out of the you know the the clay modeling and all of that other stuff but you did that over and over and you kind of you you still took you took your measurements off of it and all that other stuff but you created these designs so you almost like worked backwards from versus the way that we do it now whereas you can create it all in the computer you can um create all of these shapes and all these swoopy designs but then you can create the fabrication process out of it um so it's it's kind of like working backwards or working um in reverse from the way things were to achieve a similar design aspect to the way we can now is you can test it multiple times right. Um, you know, in the computer to make sure it works and make sure that, you know, you've got your panel joining right and, and all of these other things that, you know, because I mean, I, I think I started to be in a very loose kind of ignorant way, um, starting to understand computational design when we sat down and we were talking with shop and they were talking about how they basically designed the Barclay Center um, in this in this particular fashion. And you know, had to go through the whole fitting, test fitting and all that other stuff. And, and then sat down with, um, the contractors and they were just like, well, how are we going to, you know, fix this? It's like, well, easy. See the way that we designed this in the computer. And, you know, you got these five little bolt holes and you put those, you align those five little bolt holes with those little things right there and you just screw it in and boom, you're done. And they're like, is it really that easy? Well, yeah. They didn't believe them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Until they like, trust us. Yeah. You're like, well, you know, but I mean, um, and so that, and, and again, is, you know, you, you'd said is, as early, I mean, we're, you know, in the early phases of this and it takes a lot of, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort to get past the skepticism of it, but the more and more we do it, the more and more people are going to start to trust that, okay, we've really thought through all of this stuff. Give us the opportunity, give us the chance and you're going to be able to have swoopy buildings. Well, and, and I don't making the and, it, and it doesn't even have to. It doesn't have to be that at all, right? It's so so. Data is data, and data doesn't care if it's straight or if it's curved. Um, and I th right, I think right. one of the things that we're really talking about is the ability to base the design on data. So when you're talking about making architecture performative, when you're talking about the facade needs to do this exact thing to keep the heat and the glare off of the, the space inside, you can actually prove that it does that by doing this kind of modeling. And so it doesn't, it's not just about 
shapes, but it's also about performance and it's also about right, right. model interoperability, right? Like if you design it in this piece of software and you want to push it through to that documentation software, the, the this visual coding that you can do can make that happen so that you don't have to redraw the model again later if you, if you, you know, if you can't or if you don't want to. So there there's definitely a lot of neat ways to describe it and a lot of neat things that it can do, but it really comes down to like, is your firm ready to adopt that kind of thing? And I, you know, a lot of times the answer is no, it's scary. It's new. It's weird. It's uh, you know, why, why are you doing programming? You should be drawing right now. And it's like, well, if I figure this out now, we'll be able to use it on every single project after this and we'll never have to draw that thing again. Right. Do you think real quick that, some of the firm's hesitations stem back to kind of my speculation of client hesitations or just how do you monetize that? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, so if I know it, I know it's multifaceted issues and stuff. It takes somebody to do it and show, right. You got to show it. But I think if you show a value that says we're using this stuff to make decisions, which is what architecture is all about right? How do we get from these really loose sets of inputs that we actually have to synthesize into a real building? How do we get down that decision tree and actually make decisions based on whatever inputs we've got, whether they're client inputs, code inputs, agency inputs, internal architectural inputs, um, environmental, all, all these things, how do you actually make decisions? And I think that's where things like this actually help and they do add value is they say, well, you know, if, if we can build a tool or if a tool already exists that helps us decide something now based on the best information mm-hmm. we have in a much faster way than we've ever been able to do it before, there's your value. Right. No, I wasn't really, I, I was just trying to, I guess, figure out why there's so much, you know, so much hesitation from firms out there when the value of being able to do this expands the value that they offer and you know that each firm can offer i mean if you if you basically are telling people that you know i can make your building better based off of all of the data input and and all of these different tools that i have at my disposal i mean why not why not position yourself to be an industry leader rather than, you know, kind of the old fashioned old way of doing things. I mean, it just makes more sense. It's just like, if if you're trying to convince a, let's just say you're trying to convince a client, um, to use a, a different like rain screen system that they've never used before. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you show them, you know, basically, you know, through all of the different data, not just from product data and stuff like that, but, you know, is, you know, this design data of how it all fits together, how it all, you know, is, I mean, because, you know, has it, you, you can talk about from, from my aspect of things, we always talk about things about maintenance, durability, you know, um, whether or not, you know, is, is this cleanable? I mean, yeah, that's maintenance, but anyway, you know, you've got all of these different constraints that they think of, you know, but if you're able to show them how it's used, and I know this is slight deviation from that, but I mean, you're able to like convince people based off of a lot of different, you know, information 
how to use things better, how it, how that building can become more efficient, how that building will, you know, ultimately save them money and, you know, help them, you know, drive decisions that makes not only better architecture, but also a better performing building mm-hmm. as well. So, and it was a slight deviation from what we were talking about, but not really. I, th- I think one of the neatest things that I've seen come out recently that we're testing is what, so, you know, computational design, you need kind of basically, let's just call it visual programming aspect to it. And there's there's been quite a few players in the market when it comes to that. The most popular one has probably been Grasshopper, which is inside of Rhino. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's Dynamo inside of Revit. And there's there's other right. other software out there like generative components and stuff like that. But um, those are the probably the two most popular, Dynamo and Grasshopper. And I think what is one of the most interesting things that's happened in recent months is now you is this project called Rhino Inside, and Rhino Inside is I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but if you go to to Rhino three D dot com slash inside, um, you can actually see that Rhino is running inside of Revit in this particular screenshot. And so the idea is that it allows Rhino and Grasshopper to be embedded into another application, and it could be almost any application. Like you could have Rhino running inside of Excel if you wanted to. You could have it running mm-hmm. inside of Photoshop. Um, and so some early development has been happening on getting it running inside of Revit. And I think what's really interesting about that is that now, so you could actually be building a model in your conceptual design application, which would be Rhino, right inside of Revit. And you're not going to be rebuilding that stuff when it gets into Revit because it's actually translating that information into native Revit geometry. So if you're designing a, you know, your site design, your topography, you can actually turn that into a in live. Like there's no turning it into; it just shows up in Revit as a live topography model, and columns and floors and all that kind of stuff. Now it doesn't do everything because this is this is a new thing, but eventually. Like this has huge promise because it you know like when you're talking about parametric design when you're talking about constraints that can be changed because changes always happen right we know that changes happen so neil earlier on you were talking about well, what happens when you move that w- one window do you have to update it in all the different models it's like well now I'll, i can move a slider and it updates in my conceptual design model and in my production environment at the same time in all the models. Um, and, and to me, that's where things get really interesting because Revit's a great documentation tool. Rhino's a first-class modeling tool. And now you're telling me you can put one inside the other? Like, there, that's this is going to take a mindset shift, right, of how, how do we approach things and why do we do things the way that we do them? Because, man, all of a sudden, I'm starting to see that there's a better way to do it, which is pretty cool right like that's pretty interesting so i mean this is something that we're 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 definitely looking at and investing in because if i don't have to rebuild the model at the start of dd because it was built inside revit already with but using the tools that my designer is comfortable with that's fantastic right Hmm. um pretty pretty neat development and so it's putting computational design engine inside another computational design engine, right? It's like, it's like, what are the possibilities? I don't think we even know what the possibilities here are yet. 
it's pretty neat that they're doing that. And so when you start to think about what what the team at Rhinoceros has done at McNeil, they they actually have removed all of the stuff that gets in between these two programs. It's always been a huge chore to get geometry from one application into another in kind of a live yeah, yeah. in a in a live way. It's always been easy just to export and import, but but that breaks the it breaks the system when you do that, right? Like that's a snapshot. Yeah, and not everything always translates and Right. You and know, you've you got to rebuild in, you it. Lose information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you know, not not I don't want to paint like the most rosy picture. Not everything has been solved yet, but it's like the path has clearly been outlined and it's going to happen, right? So I think that's that's going to be a potential huge boon for Revit users and whoever. Like I, I shouldn't I shouldn't keep Archicad out of this because Archicad has had Grasshopper tie-ins for for a few years now, um, where you can actually live link your Grasshopper definitions to your Archicad model as well. So it's really interesting to see kind of the scrappy little upstart called McNeil who's been around for a long time but they've always stayed independent now kind of getting into all these main architectural applications at their bottom most level um, to really kind of grab a foothold into the design process and really make sure that they stay relevant into the future because you know Autodesk I'm sure they I'm sure they're pissed about this right? uh, sure. <laughs> because it's a it is a competitor even though they're they they're not on its scale or marketing dollars, a competitor, but man, like they're a geometry and a process competitor. So it's got, it's an interesting shift. Hmm. Anyway, uh, another one that I, I, I don't know if you guys have looked at Neil, this is, this one I think is right up your alley is test fit. Have you guys looked into test fit at all? Have you heard about it? I've heard of it, but I, <laughs> it's one of the, one of those, you know, you're like, why do we not adopt things? Because you hear about them, but you never really look into them. Yeah. That's my yeah. problem. <laughs> so, Oh, I have heard about this. Yeah, so it's 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 really aimed at multifamily, and that's why I asked you, because I've talked to the guy who, st- who founded it, and his name's Clifton, and he, you know, that's where there, there's a lot more money in developer stuff than there is in architecture stuff. So, I mean, his clients are not really architects. He's going after the developer crowd, but obviously architects are interested in this because, you know, it's like, Hmm. it's like you asked the question, how can you, how can you make money off this? Well, if, if you're at the table early on in the project, because you know how to work this stuff, you're going to add value, right? So test fit, if you go to testfit.io, you can watch some videos on what it does, but this is a standalone application, but it's using the same kind of ideas that you would, if you, if you built your own kind of design computation engine to do this kind of stuff, but it's using program data and circulation paths and maximizing site area. And basically the original intention was to, to like do pro formas very quickly, right? Oh, Hmm. what's this thing going to cost with, with, three underground levels of parking and seven stories and what's it gonna what's it gonna cost if we do a podium and what's it gonna cost you know and you can basically say very very quickly what if the site's this big well what if the site's this half that big and the rest of it's a park like you can you can attach dollars to to this and it is seriously as easy as like pushing and pulling a line um but then out of that has grown something way more mature where it's like it can automatically place 
firewalls because it knows the distances away from you know that based on areas it can automatically get rid of dead end corridors by automatically placing um, stairwells where they need to go to get people down and so because all that stuff is constraints based I keep going back to the constraints idea like those are real constraints mandated by code those can get hard coded into the application so that you don't have to accidentally do a building that doesn't have enough stairwells or it has dead end corridors or you you automatically know where the firewalls go it's really cool stuff and and i i think i'm really rooting for these guys because you know when it comes to student housing um multifamily housing um potentially hospital patient wings you know there's there's a lot of applications that could come out of this and right now they're focusing on the the multifamily real estate but um i think with some tweaks this could become something available to a lot more practice markets in architecture. Um, and I just encourage you to go watch the videos because like what I'm telling, it doesn't do any justice. It's amazing what this stuff can do. And I think what's cool about it is like, this didn't exist five years ago. You know, this is now a thing and you could use it to do very early design make decisions very quickly based on real data, data inputs. You know, you can actually plug your real program into there and you can say this many two bedrooms and this many one bedrooms and this many three bedrooms. And then you could switch those numbers up and see the exact output that you would need. And it's always kind of solving it to be the most efficient. Um, but again, it's a great starting point to, to at least have a baseline understanding of your project, what it's going to cost, what the layout could be. And then you could go from there. And it's just, continually being developed and adding more and more features pretty sweet so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that one too even though it doesn't really even have anything to do with what our firm does but uh, I mean, automatically laying out parking and parking garages like like okay it gets you 98 percent of the way way there in five seconds like tell me right tell me what's not appealing about that <laughs> you know pretty pretty amazing that's yeah, I mean, and I'm just looking at, I mean, I, I just kind of... If you go to their blog, to watch a little, you can just see all these yeah, animated GIFs that it's like, that, holy that, that's crap. What I, that's what I was looking at is their blog. And it was it's amazing to just kind of like go back through and just, yeah, test fit things. And it's pretty interesting. Yep. Yeah, totally. And again, this Low is just density, an example density, of... I mean, come on. Generative design. I mean, holy crap, this is amazing. Yeah, right? I mean, it's solving real problems. I think that's what's really exciting about it. This is, this is computation, and there's no swoopy shapes here, right? Like, this is, this, is, this is probably a pretty good definition for what generative design or computation can do in a very right. practical way. And I think that's there's, – there's definitely kind of two different – routes that people take and and a lot of times i think you have to do them at the same time there's like the super practical internal stuff that makes what we do on a day-to-day -day basis easier and faster because we have to remain competitive but clients don't care about that because they just expect it oh great you can do what everybody else can do fantastic oh you can do it faster even better right it might become a differentiator but it probably isn't but then there's the stuff that's externally facing that's like, wow, check out these cutting edge capabilities that we offer. 
And so those are kind of the two different paths that I feel like we kind of have to straddle with this stuff. And so you can't just focus on one, right? Because if you, if you just focus on the external facing stuff and you actually can't do it internally, mm-hmm. then, then you're making false promises. If you're only focusing on the internal stuff, then you're just being as good as everybody else and you're not exciting or inspiring a clientele out there with new capabilities. You might just be doing right, stuff that makes right. you better internally, more efficient, whatever. But I don't, I, I don't think you can do either one of those independently. You kind of have to be able to do both. Agreed. Agreed. And that's a tough balancing act, I think, because you've got you've got different forces pulling at those. You've got people on the inside who want to do cool stuff. Like, you know, your staff, your staff wants to do great work. Right. And mm-hmm. then you've got your marketing department <laughs> who's like, or, or your PICs or your BD people who are like, man, what capabilities can we show off to our client and really wow them? And it's like, so, so how do you balance, you know, that kind of stuff? How do you do that with a small staff or with no staff dedicated to this stuff? How do you actually pull that off? So, I think that's that's kind of our struggle as architects is is like you said neil how, how do you charge for this stuff well are you dedicating people to define the future of your company and how they're going to do that or are you just continuing to do the same thing you've always done i don't know you every firm has to decide that for themselves Yes. Yes. There you go. I mean, there's there was a lot there. So I don't know, man. I, I I don't know what the answer is for firms because there is no one answer. But but there's a lot of neat stuff happening. And like I said, like if you if let's just say this is the first time you've ever seen Test Fit, are you excited about it? Are you scared by it? What what? <laughs> I was just lo- I was just looking at the I mean this is the first time I mean like I said I've heard of it I didn't really know much about it and now I'm just looking at just the blog itself and I'm looking at you know test fit geometry that can be pushed into Dynamo and then into Revit I mean so you're now like cre- you're creating these you know this you're you're taking the information that you're creating out of test fit and you're being able you know once you it can, doesn't like, just stay there on, yeah. on things that work. It doesn't just stay there. You can move it to something else. You can figure out, oh, crap, I, you know, because there's so many times where I personally, you know, get frustrated where we start to, you know, design things in other, um, in other things, you know, in, in other programs that don't translate very well or don't play well with Revit. And so then we, you know, we can bring a portion of it in maybe, and then, but we have to re, you know, essentially recreate it or rebuild it in Revit to make it work. And so we just talked about two things more, that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just go the more and more, more and more you're able to get things to translate into your production software from my, you know, from where I'm at in my career right now. And, and that's what I'm trying to do is, you know, make uh, the, you know, productivity of a team, you know, better because we're trying to get, you know, these projects done, but we're trying to make, as we've said, you know, in the past here, you know, we're just trying, we're, we're trying to make better buildings, but a lot of times we get bogged down into like the nitty gritty of some things. And we're like, Oh, I really didn't get to that one because, you know, we just ran out of time. Well, you know, I mean, that's not really necessarily the right answer, 
it's we ran out of time because you know we created it in one place and now we're trying to recreate it in another place and you know we have all these you know excuses and issues and all this other stuff but as you you know are able to have all of these things with interfaces um then you know you can um it it, it just it it makes it, it it makes the workflow that much better yeah and i think what's yeah. what's really neat about that from our own internal perspective is that the way that these tools are being tied together, the way that the interoperability happens, you don't have to wait for a team member who does documentation to wait until the the design is done. They actually can happen at the same time. And then you tie that into like a real-time rendering environment and your visualization is happening at the same time. And it, it not only helps you from like an output deliverable standpoint mm-hmm. and, and a shortening yeah. of the timeline, it actually helps you from a project understanding standpoint because we all know that all three of those discrete, previously discrete stages um, op- unlock things that you would never before considered, right? Now, if they're all happening at the same right. time, they're actually informing each other in a much more distinct way. So... You can you can be looking at the conceptual di- design in plan view, in elevation view, in your production environment, and at the real time renderings at the same time, and you can make decisions right. that go back right. and mm-hmm. modify those constraints to update the design in real time. Like this is all happening at the same time, and I think that there is some huge, huge implications there. I mean, you know, because this is like just looking at test fit, you know, for now. I mean, you know, this this is, you know, showing you um, how you can arrange different like living suites and how that fits in with parking and, ha- you know, but it's also generating, you know, massing. It's generating, you know, information, like you said, you know, like where to locate stairs, where to locate, you know, firewalls, where to do all of these other things, you know. And then you take, again, you know, it gets back to this whole um, massing and you take that massing, you take that massing into your um, your real time rendering, and you start to at least see how it's you know starting to like pan out. I mean, there's just so many different like options and opportunities that you can do with these things, and you're not just doing it in this like iterative process of like I've got to do this, then next I got to do this, then next I got to do yeah, it's this. It's not in series. It's doing it all it together. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, and I would I, I would just I to kind of maybe advantage. tie tie a bow on this at the and maybe wrap it up here is that what's kind of neat about this is that because of the the environment that exists with with software developers out there and you know non architects or or people who are augmenting architects like you don't have to do all this in house like if if this stuff scares the crap out of you um, you can go outside and hire these people to come in and do it for you and yeah that costs money but at the same time like they they might have already developed it for somebody else because that tends to be what happens right (laughs) somebody's got this idea they go to the software developer and they say hey can you make it do this and they're like yeah we can make it do that for you um well then you come along and you say hey have you guys ever thought about doing this and they're like yeah we we've We've done that three times for these other clients, um, and we can make that available to you too. And I think that's where I would love to see our profession get to is the point where we're not all doing that independently, um, but but these these firms can actually go and develop this stuff and, and make it so that our profession 
is seen as more valuable and not just individual firms is seen as the most valuable because I don't, I don't know that that ever happens. This isn't a finite game where somebody wins. Um, I think we all, we all kind of win projects here and there and we all win clients here and there, but there's no winner. Um, this is the infinite game. This is the thing that you have to keep on playing. Yeah. I'd say the only, the only winner in this one is if we can get our profession recognized as, you know, bringing more value to projects rather than, you know, the, them saying, well, you know, I don't really think that we need a, of an architect. We can do this with a builder or we can do this with this and that. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, if we can show the value of the, the profession, then we all win. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. We're it's always fun to show you guys <laughs> some new stuff. I hope it, it, it gets you excited and not scared to death. Very. Oh, no, totally exciting. I mean, these are just, it's, some of the stuff you talked about is amazing. And it's just like, why, why don't we know more about it? Or why aren't we doing this? I mean, holy crap, this is stuff that we can, you know, use as great tools. So anything to help facilitate, not just making it easier, but just making it better, uh, we should, we should be doing. Yeah. And then, and then talking to everybody about it in your firm, the business people, yes. the PIC, yeah. like showing it off because the more people are just aware that it exists, um, it just informs like I'm going to be making some, some presentations, some square posts. Yeah, cool. <laughs> be doing some square posts. Like, Hey, did you guys know that this exists? Yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I can see how even test fit, um, in a way could help our student housing. You yeah. know, I mean, it may not, you know, cause we do do things that are, um, more like student housing, like apartment types. And things like that, you know, ooh, it's a three bedroom, you know, like um, three bed, three bedroom suites and things like that, you know, and, you know, just scroll again, scrolling through just the, um, the, the blog posts that they have, you know, I mean, there are very, you know, the densities and, you know, being able to work with different things like that, I can totally see as something that could, uh, you know, like translate. Um, so yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap of it. Yeah. Thanks for uh, taking us on this journey. It's fun. <laughs> it's a good time. I enjoy it. Oh, I, obviously. I couldn't tell. <laughs> you you spoke with no passion Sorry. or yeah, excitement next time. at all. Maybe next time. So how are you guys doing? Oh, fine. <laughs> Ready for a day off. When I joined in on my laptop and uh, for some reason, Microsoft had changed my login from Peter to Pedro. As it should. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Vote for Pedro. I saw there was a Pedro Lavelle, but I figured that's not him. Yeah, I was like, when did it, how did it change to Pedro? I don't know how that happened. Um. Let's let's actually kick it off with just the last time we hung out in New York and like kind of how you introduced this thing maybe and then just to give a little bit of backstory and then jump into it. Sure. Right. So, uh, Evan Cormick, I believe uh, we met up what last year in New York actually and. Evan, I think you just got back from New York. Yep. And, and um, 
I'd love to hear about that, by the way. But uh, we had a chance to kind of go out to dinner and, and talk a little bit about this. Um, didn't get too much in detail at the time. Didn't have uh, any details yet, right? <laughs> this is a, kind of a this is a thing that's been going on for a while now. You've had you've had a couple of setbacks. It is. It is. It's something that um, we've been working on for about uh, three years, and wow. um, we were really started to get starting to pick up steam in uh, 2017, when in October the uh, wildfires came through and and really did some damage to Santa Rosa, and that kind of got really. It, Everything just kind of got put put on the back burner as uh, as our chapter took on a, a different role. Well, and, before before you get into the history of of what happened, why don't you talk about what this is real quick? Give give our listeners uh, the title of what you're talking about, and maybe a little bit about about you and your location and stuff like that. Sounds great. So my name is Peter Lavelle. I am the president of the AIA Redwood Empire chapter here in Northern California. That sounds um, really uh, like Return of the Jedi, by the way. The Redwood Empire. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that was our intent. Yep. <laughs> Love it. So it's it's geographically a, a relatively large chapter. It stretches from just north of Marin up to the Oregon border. Um uh, sort of on the western side of California here, and uh, we are uh, our board is basically located in Santa Rosa. It's a city about forty forty five minutes north of San Francisco, and uh, it's a great little city, small city, about one hundred fifty thousand people, I think. Um, our chapter has about two hundred people, and when I got involved with the AIA, I was I was a Emerging professionals director. I myself, as an emerging professional, was interested in really promoting the interests of emerging professionals and associates. Um, so I tried a couple different things, and uh, started a, tried a mentorship program, a number of social events, uh, but nothing really caught on. And so, really started to sit down with a couple of team members and try and figure out exactly what we could do that could make a difference. And we realized that the three things that emerging professionals need or want are exposure, portfolio fodder, and engagement. And we came to the realization that an architectural installation would kind of hit all three of those parameters. Um, you know, if somebody could sort of build something and get in front of people, that would give them a chance to engage with the community. Um, and would get something in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. So this idea of an installation kind of came about as a competition. So it, rather than just having a design competition, it's a design build competition. And so at about that time, we were also looking at who else was doing this. We were getting good ideas from other chapters and we came across uh, the Young Architects Program, which is run out of PS1 in, uh, in in New York. So for those of you who don't know, PS1 is the Contemporary Arts Division of the New York Museum of Modern Art, and they it's named after a public school one over in uh, Queens. And when I was in New York, I got a chance to go over there and visit it. They have every year what they have is a Young Architects Program where it's an invited competition. They have a space within this museum 
at, they allow a young firm to sort of take over and transform the space. It's an invited competition. Um, they have five people go for the design and they, they typically put the, um, they have them build these scale models at about, you know, uh, eighth inch or something. And they put them on display in the, in the New York MoMA. It's really interesting. Uh, I believe the winners just went up right now for this year. Uh, but I had a chance to tour it with the winners from last year, uh, with the guys who put on the Young Architects program and uh, got an idea of how they put it on and what sort of parameters they use. And we started basing the idea of our competition on theirs. So um, the parameters they use are seating, shade, and water. And basically, they transform the space for essentially what is a large party that happens over the summer. And yeah, it's by really the way, cool. Pete, like it was kind of cool because when we interviewed Shop Architects, they had they've done a installation at PS One, and it was called DuneScape, and it it was pretty cool. So just to kind of tie it back into something else we've talked about on the show, um, and then with our trips to New York and stuff, I think it's all it's all pretty relevant how it all ties together. So this is a cool story. It, it's I was really impressed with how they put it together. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing that it's pretty amazing to see what young archi architects can do with essentially a bare courtyard. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's what totally. I love about it is it really showcases the creativity and the talent of uh, some of these young architects. And it really serves as a launching platform for the career. Um, so we thought it would be a great example to try here in Santa Rosa. It's the same time we were coming up with this idea. There's a square in downtown Santa Rosa that was just under construction. Um, it's an historic square. They call it World Courthouse Square. There used to be a courthouse there that... Uh, as local urban lore has it, it was um, damaged by the earthquake in 64 and, and they tried to demolish it after it was deemed unsafe and the contractor went broke trying to demolish it. Uh, but anyways, they, uh, the square was opened up after that, but it was bisected and had a street going right through the middle. And it took them a, a good 40, 50 years to redesign it and eventually merge the square back into one again so now we have this new wow. square downtown and so the idea was really sort of the same as ps1 where let's give some architects an opportunity to uh transform the space and so while it's not an enclosed courtyard the parameters have to be modified a little bit so we're kind of going on the relevant ideas of ps1 and we started calling it PSR1 for Santa Rosa, Public Space Santa Rosa. Hmm. Um, quite honestly, we could not think of a better name. And that one just <laughs> it stuck. It works. <laughs> you know? It does. It does. So uh, I should say right now before I forget, um, we, there's a website for this. You go to www.aiare.org and there's a link to this. So... Um, the parameters for it are seating, shade, and a 10 by 10 footprint. So hmm. we're anticipating, uh, there will be three winners. Uh, one of them will be an honor and there, um, there's a paid stipend for the winners. The, the honor award gets $2,000 and the two merits will get $1,500 each. Nice. So, how is it? Is yeah, it, we don't. 
Go ahead. I was going to say, is it the intent to just build one or to potentially build all three? The intent is to build all three. Awesome. So we will be installing these, or the I should say the winners will be installing these in August of this year. Uh, August 17th, to be exact, it's it's on a Saturday. And we have a permit with the city to go from Saturday through Wednesday. And the idea behind that is is that on Wednesday, there is a Wednesday night market. And so it, it provides the exposure we were looking for to get that kind of critical Perfect. mass down there. Nice. Um, we don't expect the winners to hang out. Uh, we'll go ahead and take care of the deinstallation because, you know, we figure if somebody's driving up from Southern California or something like that, they're probably not going to be able to hang out for four or five days. Uh, but the install is on the weekend that allows somebody to kind of come up if they're, you know, working during the week or something like that. Nice. I, I like so that. when we, of... when we met in, in New York, you were talking about, having um this be a, a jurid competition right right so um i had reached out to you guys pretty early on because i knew the most important thing about this was going to be the jury and um i thought that arc speak really kind of um spoke to me about the idea of this competition you guys have done a lot in my eyes to sort of help out emerging professionals myself included and so i thought you guys would be a great jury um, so I'm really looking forward to this. In July, we'll be meeting up uh, digitally, I guess, to sort of review the entries. We also have a couple other juries because um, as I found building, putting something together like this, it really um, is important that you have a strong team uh, behind you and, and to sort of diversify ourselves a little bit. Uh, so the jury consists of you guys, and also um, Jenna Itzen is on, on board. She's the former AICC, or I think they just changed it as the AIA California um, president. She's still on the board as a, a strategic uh, council member, and uh, she's the principal of Itzen Architects. So she's a, a great designer, great resource. I'm really looking forward to, to including her on this. Um, we also have Kimberly Garza of um, Atlas Labs out of Sacramento. And they are a great landscape architecture firm. And um, again, wanted to include other emerging professionals aside from architects, but also landscape architects. Um, as well, we are also paired up with a local structural engineering firm, uh, MKM and Associates, who the winners will be paired up with a uh, structural engineer uh, sort of EP to, you know, make sure that they get some advice on how to how to make these things stand up and keep them standing for the four or five days they need to be there. Nice. So really wanted to include as much people as possible in this. It sounds like you have all the all the right components. And uh, I think yeah. that what's cool about this is that people who decide to enter have these additional resources, you know, from the structural engineering standpoint. And it sounds like you guys have thought through a lot of the, the details about taking them down afterwards so they don't have to. And it sounds like, um, you know, it's it's more than just the bare bones. They, there's some things that they don't have to think about, which really kind of frees people up to be really creative and, and do something interesting. I hope so. I mean, we didn't put a height restriction on it, so that might be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the towers. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. 
Um, but yeah, I'm really hoping for uh, some some interesting entries. It'll be a blind competition, so we won't have any names on it. I'm assuming people will probably team up in teams of two or three. Nice. Uh, but but it's something that I've been working on for for quite a long time, and and it's really got some really have some uh, local interest here. And I think it's going to be a good thing. Well, what I like about this the competition in itself, but more your story behind the competition is is that you've been thinking about it for a very long time. You've faced tons of challenges with you know the fire and, and everything else that was going on. And you're still at it and you're still sticking with it and you haven't given up about, you know, um, having this done. And now it's actually starting to come to fruition and you're, you know, it, it's, it's about, I mean, it's your tenacity is about to pay off. Yeah, definitely. At yeah, a certain give, give people an idea of like what kind of adversities you've been up against. How, you, you talked about this when we were together last year, but man, it's, it's like the devastation <laughs> is unreal. And it's, it's like no wonder that this, this has been pushed back a little bit. Right. So the, uh, in October, the, the fires we were just talking about came through and were basically within about, um, as a crow flies about, a mile and a half from the town center. Um, we lost about 6,000 homes and about 1,400 businesses. It jumped the freeway. The fire actually crossed 101. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about a four-lane, four-lane, actually six-lane freeway at that point. The fire crossed the freeway in the middle of the night, uh, burned down Coffee Park. Um it was really kind of surprising because you never really expect a fire to kind of get into the sort of inner city areas. You know, it's always sort of on the outskirts. Um, but um, it was quite a challenge because we didn't really know. We, nobody really knew what to knew what to do. You know, it was kind of during the headlights um, and never actually had any sort of conversation about what to do um, in that kind of situation. And so. Um, but we all kind of came together, um, local architects just sort of working 60 hour weeks, trying to, trying to get, trying to get, uh, the rebuilds back on. It's pretty interesting. Now we're a year and a half later. Um, and there's a lot of rebuilding. It's really interesting. I've never seen this before in my life where you can drive through a neighborhood and every house is under construction by a different contractor. <laughs> you know it's it's not like you know i've seen whole neighborhoods under construction but that's typically like a developer right uh, but there's just these armies of contractors just building entire neighborhoods all at the same time and it's an amazing thing to see wow um that's the just sort of resiliency of the city is it's pretty amazing um one of our board members is a former mayor of santa rosa and he lost his business he's an architect and they lost their business in the fire so they had to rebuild all their files because they lost every every file they had uh, they had to call their consultants and get backgrounds and rebuild their um, file base and they are back up and running a year and a half later in a new office and to me it really speaks to the tenacity of the city and our board to move on from this successfully that's crazy amazing i mean 
6,000 houses, you know, I mean, like, obviously this has probably sprung a bunch of new businesses, but I'm sure a lot of businesses went away too. So it's just like a complete sea change in kind of the fabric, but then you also still have the people who, who've hung on and, and, and enabled this to this rebuilding to happen. So it seems like, man, this, this competition, this event where the culmination of all this in the square is just going to be a, a really big deal and a really good time. I think so. It it really took on another added layer to it because we found after the fires that there was just a lack of, um, of, you know, help here. I mean, we were all struggling to kind of get through this. And so this really became about also creating awareness of Santa Rosa and our, our, our great little city up here so that, you know, we can, you know, get more people up here to help out, hopefully. Um, because it is a great place to live. And um, so that's that's really what I'm I'm hoping this competition will help out with. Uh, that, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking. It was, you know, the competition can almost serve as a punctuation of saying, we're still here. Mm-hmm. You know, right. come come see who we are. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's we've all been just sort of, you know, uh, working so hard that it's really a great chance for us to kind of come together to, again as a community and just kind of celebrate the awesome thing we do right like we all do this because we love what we do mm-hmm. and so that's that's something i'm really looking forward to cool well we're really happy to participate and and help you know get the word out definitely about this and so can you give everybody the website again that they go to to find more information about the competition Right. Uh, so you can head to the our AIA chapters website, and it's AIARE.org, um, as in AIA Redwood Empire. Okay. And there will be a link on there to the uh, the competition's own webpage. Cool. So I can give you a couple of rough dates here, but the registration is due on June 22nd. Um, the actual submissions are due June 29th. Um, we'll be announcing the winners in July on uh, July 13th. And the install is about five weeks later on August 17th. Wow. It's fast. It is. It's going to be here before we know it. Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of bookended. We're kind of bookended by the Wednesday night market. Again, we wanted to get that critical mass of people. And this is the second to last Wednesday night market of the year um but it was the latest one we could get a permit for so cool awesome so that's going to be huge i hope so good all right so listeners get out there and put your thinking caps on because this is this is going to be a fantastic competition for a great cause it's great exposure it's all the things that you could possibly want i think uh and i mean i think it's kind of a genius move for you to do it as design build because it, I think that that kind of experience, I mean, Pete, we've done stuff like that before in the past, right? I mean, yeah. the old, uh, <laughs> the old FEMA shelters for Cal Poly. I mean, like, there's just so, there, there's so many things I can think of the, the work that we did in design build, the stuff we we've done it, you know, Pete, just so listeners know, Pete and I have worked together at, is it, I guess it's really technically three different places. Um, and, and so 
And so, you know, just we, we have a long history of, of actually making stuff, too. And I think Pete and I have always kind of felt like that is a critical component to and uh, being an architect is actually building stuff, too. And so this is a cool opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Design build has always been something that's sort of near and dear to my heart. Um, so I'm a very tactile person and uh, learn by doing, as I say. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and again, like to have the resources of uh, the structural engineer, and I think thinking about it from a architectural and a landscape perspective, um, the night market, like all these things, these these great inputs. Um, I think that 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 was all really gonna make it even better. So good, good for you guys for putting all that together and putting together a great jury. Not not just saying that because it's us, but looking forward to, to <laughs> if you do say with, so yourself. Yeah, no, but I mean, I'm you know. Janet, uh, sorry, uh, Janet Itson and, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and Kimberly. Kimberly. Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be fantastic. And I, I think you're going to get a, some, some neat, I'm hoping we're going to get some great competition entries to, to judge and jury and uh, really looking forward to this event. It's going to be good. Very good. Great. Well, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Cool. And are we going to see you in Vegas? Uh, I will not be there, but our, one of the committee members that's helping with this will be out there. His name's Giuliano and he's got some sort of tickets, some printed tickets he'll be handing out about this. I have more information on it. Nice. Well, let's make sure that we hook up with him Yeah. and, uh, we'll be there and I'm, I'm sure you're slammed because of all the work that you're doing up there in Santa Rosa, but thanks for coming on the show and talking about this and. Again, we're, it's going to be it's going to be here before we know it, but it's good to get the word out about it now so that people can start thinking about it and and check out the website and see what the constraints are and come up with some cool ideas. Definitely. Well, thanks thanks for having me on, guys, and I, and I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thanks, man. All right.